Shut up and sit down. Hello and welcome back to Mad Get Radio, episode number 33, the show where we talk shit about Ninth Age and we make a few penis jokes along the way. And boy, do we have a show to get you stiff today. (laughs) As always, I'm joined by my faithful sidekick and co-host. He's the Cummings to my Johnson. That's right, two penis jokes already. It's Paul. What's going on, guys? I don't know, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. Do you? Is it too relevant? I mean, it's very relevant, which is good, but, like, who? which one was I? You were Cummings. Oh, fuck, man. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be Johnson either, to be fair. It's literally, I, I was watching the news, and they said Johnson and Cummings, and I was like, why is no one making penis jokes about this? <laughs> so that was the kind of niche that we can fill at Mad Get Radio. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, and on today's show, we have the absolute privilege to have a true giant of the game with us. He's undoubtedly one of the best players in the world, and he's probably one of the most loved people on the, the UK scene. It's Adam Tanker-Jones. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you for the uh, nice introduction, I guess. <laughs> so how's it going, guys? How are we surviving Corona? Good from my side. Work's been busier than ever, but um, other than that, okay. Good. Paolo, how are you getting on? Very quiet, really. Trying to uh, build up the enthusiasm for hobby. Got some um, potential projects in the works, which I'll, I'm quite looking forward to just getting kicked off, which is good. But yeah, work for me is actually winding down, so looking for more games, more painting. Nice. UB's going to be hella busy in the next couple of weeks, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Lots of things going on in UB. Yeah. So um, because we've got the man, the myth, the legend, Tank on, uh, we're going to use this as an opportunity to talk... Uh, with him about a lot of things, including MSU, list building, power tiers, all that kind of juicy stuff. Uh, but before we get into that kind of thing, uh, Tanka, do you want to just uh, enlighten anyone out there that who doesn't know who you are for some strange reason? Uh, yeah, cheers. Uh, yeah, so I've been playing now for ooh, close to 18 years. I started when I was about 11 or so. So um, yeah, a long time ago now. Started as I think a lot of people did in the UK back in GW stores. And then slowly over the years expanded that to club gaming. Obviously, we used to have quite a big ninth age club called Dudley Dark Lords. That's uh, dwindled away over the years. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, yeah, now there's just the two of us left playing. But um, we do still play a few other games. Like We play a lot of Lord of the Rings Well, when the club was open before COVID, obviously. And uh, yeah, started playing in tournaments probably pretty quickly after I started, probably when I was 13 or 14, we had local tournaments, and then from there, just carried on playing. I probably play most of my games nowadays at tournaments. Wow. Nice. So, uh, what armies do you play, first off? Uh, At one time or another, I have actually owned every army that is in the game. Wow. But uh, at the moment, it's warriors, elves, demons, and ogres. And who's the top pick? Uh, the most enjoyable is Ogres, but the top pick is... Well, top pick would be Demons, but uh, obviously I don't get to play those for the team, so Warriors normally. Okay, cool. 
Oh, and SA, sorry. I should have said Saurians as well. Nice. Uh, so there's obviously loads we're going to talk to you about. Um, but before we get into that juicy stuff, to pay our, our weekly repentance, we've uh, hooked Martin up to a microphone and he has given us a wonderful salt mine. So let's find out what he's salty about this week. Yeah, baby. It's salt time. Hi guys, today I have a topic that is going to be quite controversial, especially for Andrew. So we are talking about, about uh, units that used to be shit, and now they are either or both stupidly cheap and have tons of rules. So now they are fucking bent and amazing. So I'm not going to mention everything, all the models and all the rules that are on the on the books, but just to name a few, let's start with well, has special mention the Gore Track with nine rules. It's not entirely bent. We all know what a Gore Track can do. The fact that it's only na- it's naked, it has no saves, it's fine. It's nine rules, okay? Nine rules. We have. The Seekers, the fucking Seekers with six rules, but it's not only the rules, it's the cost and the things that they can have and the things they can do, the fucking Seekers, fucking dwarves. They shouldn't be allowed to have three units, for example, because they are unbreakable and they can be 25 guys there. Yeah, fucking dwarves. Then we have, so people do cannot say that I'm only looking the greener grass, uh, the, the, the garden on the other books. Orcs and goblins, they have the Nashers. The Nashers are dirty cheap. For whatever reason, they don't have a lot of rules. They only have four rules, so it doesn't really matter. But for some reason, a blob, a frog there that they have no arms or anything. It has offensive and defensive four. Why? Who the fuck knows? And it's only 10 models for 130. They can be, for less than 300, they can have like 20 something, 30 models. It's stupid. It's stupid. Then, ha. Uh, this this one is is one of the best ones. I think is a winner. No, 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 no. We have another winner for the extra rules. The Ramful of Riders. They have a total of extra twelve rules. They used to be really really bad. Um, they used to be way more cheaper, but of course because they are bent the way they are right now. They keep increasing the amount of uh, points for them and uh, and also the, the shields and all that shit. But it's 12 rules and I think I'm not counting the javelins and stuff like that. What the hell does an overkill? Does an overkill? Then we have our favorite Tom Cataphrax. 
They have six rules, if not so many. Well, no, they have more. One, two, three, four, three, four, five. Yeah, now it's six rules. The rest are the weapons and the armor. So it's, we know that these guys is, they are scoring uh, move 714, discipline 8, just because. And then they have a three up armor, three wounds each. And for some reason, they have little strike with halber, of course, strength 5, AP 2, agility 3. We are talking undead, agility 3. And then the snake is a three attacks, strength 5 with poison. So they have everything. They have everything. Oh, they can buy an undergun ambush, so an extra loot. Yay! Oh, this is the cherry. Uh, I fucking hate this one. It shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be this way. No fucking way. The Barcolac. The Barcolac is better than any monster there. Way more cheaper. Like 100 points cheaper than it should be. We are talking about a model with 8 rules. And with advanced 8.16. Hatred. Vampiric 3 because just because. Agility 4. Strength 6. Four wounds in 42, four, four up. Vanguard, of course. Autonomous, just, yeah. On a small base, because it's a 50-50 base, and it's a large, and it's beast. So he also has swift drive. So it's like, yeah, this thing has too many extra things that it shouldn't have. Because it's no way that it's that cheap, but it used to be really shit, so they st start reducing the points because, yeah, why not? BC fucking bent, Andrew, fuck you, Andrew. And then the book with, I think, the most of them. So just to name a few, we are going to Bermin Zone, they have the Rakatich Machinist. Yeah, it's just bent. It's like the unlimited breath weapon. It's, it's not a lot of rules, but it's cheap. It's dirty cheap, like everything in this fucking book. And it has the unlimited breath weapons and all that. It's, 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 no, it's, no. Then we have, <laughs> this This is the model, I think is the model with the most, the, the higher number of extra rules. The play pendulum is bent. It has 14 rules. It has 14 rules. 14 rules and is why it has everything it has everything it has nothing bad absolutely nothing bad because don't uh, don't forget about it you can have a, you can have a guy on top of it that actually boosted more you can boost it more and it's, it's, it's yeah just because and then one of the units that people hate the most and they will say, no, no, they are not that bent. Fuck you, they are not that bent. Fuck you, they are not that bent. The Play Disciples. Play Disciples have nine rules, nine extra rules. They are dirty cheap. They have hatred, battle focus. Just because. Hard target one, yes, yeah, just, yeah, why not? And they are fearless, one and all that. And light troops, so they can lateral move, and all that shit. Nobody gives a shit if they die, anyway, because why? You send them forward and fuck it. And why they had to hit first? 
on, on Agility 10, even if they, don't, they haven't it hasn't charged. I don't mind if they have impact hits. And I don't mind if they have the the toxic attack on their agility step with the frail, but not the extra attack with that. That is no. No, that's too much. So just to name a few this. Only these models. So there are obviously there are more. I think in the BC and the UD book they are like Tons of tons and tons of models with extra rules and really cheap. But yeah, anyway, bye. Um so this week on the salt mine, Martin is particularly salty about quote dirty cheap models. Uh, and he also mentioned a few things the idea of uh, rules bloat that's kinda of come about and there's a bit of a, a topic of debate just now. Uh, so what do we think? Yay or nay? Do we give him it this week? Well, full disclosure, I've not listened to it, but um, Paul, I play people Martin. don't need to know this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I play Martin enough to listen to his uh, saltiness on a regular basis, so yeah, he spoke to me about this. I kind of, on the one hand, I kind of see what he means, like there are certain units that you can spam because they are very cost effective, um, but I don't know, like, was a lot of the kind of rules bloat stuff, was that around the Infernal Dwarves book? Uh, not so much. He was kind of picking out... So he picked out a few units there. There was um, uh, the Gortak, the Tomb Cataphracts, uh, Seekers, Varklax, uh, and Nashers. Although the Nashers were more in the, the dirty cheap category. Um, just the idea that there's certain units that have been bad for a while. And in order to get them up in power level, what they've done is they've either just ramped up their stats and decreased their points, or they've just thrown rules at them until it sticks. A bit like Wing Reapers. For the yeah, okay. Just what do you think? I mean, there's certain there are certain units that I think are very cost effective, and like I would lean towards the side that a Varkalak is slightly too cheap, but I don't think it's rules blow. Bullshit. I think that's just <laughs> I think that's just a points issue. I mean, to be fair, you have admitted yourself that you think they're slightly too cheap. Uh, yeah, probably they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't, I don't think that's it. I don't think, but I don't, I don't think they've got too many rules. I think they're fine. I think the design of them is really cool. I think it's just a point cost issue. But I don't know if that's just because there's so many things in the vampire book that it's more a question of internal balance for that book. Mm. <laughs> I think they also. I think what the only thing keeping them in check really is the fact that they're in swift death. If they weren't in swift death, then you'd have, obviously, questions on fitting them in a lot easier. Yeah. If they were just a special choice, you'd see them everywhere. Oh, but they'd be mental if they were in there. Holy shit. Can you imagine? imagine? Oh, I'm getting hard just thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Just pants would explode. Um, I mean, I guess, again, to defend Varklex, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the four wounds, I mean, they're incredibly survivable. Uh, R5, four-up regen, small base, super fast. Uh, they are they're insanely good, and I don't understand people that don't rate them. Um, but the, the four wounds can be a big issue as well for Crumble. Um, because you will, have, you will have that game where one fireball takes one off as well. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I've had a I played a game at the uh, <coughs> English Championships last year, um, where the ghouls were fighting something, and two Varkalax went into the rear of the unit they were fighting. I somehow lost combat by four, and both of the Varkalax crumbled to death. 
It was like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's, cool. that's prob- yeah, like, I guess the vampire book from that perspective, like, when your dice whiff, they can be quite punishing from that perspective. But yeah. in terms of, like, design and points cost, very effective. I yeah, agree. they're really yeah. fucking strong. Really good. I'd, yeah, I'd agree. I don't know why they're not more popular. I think they're really good. So there's kind of two issues there, right? So there's the the points issue that some units have got very, very good stats for very, very cheap uh, points values, such as things like the Nashers. Like the Nashers are offensive, defensive four, agility four, strength five, two attacks, mm-hmm. and fucking dirt cheap. Yeah. Is that an issue in the game, do we think, or...? It just seems. I mean, the Orc and Goblin book, I think, is so good. There's, there's just a lot of that in the book, though. Like, why are scrap wagons only ninety five points or they're, ninety points? They're eighty points, sir. <laughs> right, eighty points. <laughs> ridiculous. But then again, I, I mean, you don't really see a lot of people bringing them. Like, I, I think more often than not, if you see Nashers, they're in like little ten man units, mm. as opposed to the big bricks. Yeah, I guess that's another issue, right? Is that you know different scenes of different lists that are popular and, and different units that are popular so something that I mean this was the Lizardman issue from a couple of years ago right where Lizardmen were absolutely written off on the continent uh, and they were smashing face here and that went on for like two years I think mm. um, so I think it comes down to scoring as well a lot of armies you can get quite a lot in an orc army but you struggle with scoring then yeah, well, you, can do, you can do depending on how you build the list so have you played much? I mean, you you said that at one point or other you played Orcs <coughs> and Goblins, like running your kind of play style, the, the whole MSU thing. I assume that with Orcs and Goblins, that's insane. With the uh, amount so of units you can have. I haven't actually played much with Orcs in 9th. I, I think I've only played about 10 games with them. Okay. So, yeah, not probably the best to, uh, to advise on that. I actually spammed Trolls in that one. That was quite an interesting uh, experiment. Yeah. Nice. The fact- some armies just can't deal with them. Some can. It, it leads to really polar results. Okay. So, not really the uh, the best take on that one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the LinkedIn issue to that is um, the rules bloat. And this is something that we talked a bit about on the ID review. And that there's increasingly, I think, the, the project is going away from the direction that it originally set out, where... Um, everything was to be slimmed down so that it was easier to access, especially for new players. But um, the Demons book and the ID book in particular have really completely abandoned that in favour <laughs> of rules everywhere in the name of fluff. What do we think about this? Because this will link into you know stuff we talk about later. But is that is that a barrier now? Is it a good thing? Does it add flavour? <clears throat> it's definitely a good thing in terms of moving away from gwip and go into your own flavor but i understand why it's happened because obviously it's committee led people want to put their take on something and one way of doing that is obviously through new interesting rules and new interesting fluff and special items and spells etc so i understand how it's come about but yeah i the demon book in particular stands out even more above the id book in that there's just too many special rules and special items that can be taken. But the ID book is a bit of a disgrace for it as well, after reading through it. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, I must say, though, I prefer it to how they did the Warrior book. When the Warrior book came out initially, it was quite stripped back, and the whole uh, complexity budget argument was thrown around the forums like, <laughs> oh, fucking tomorrow. So, like, 
I would prefer them starting with a book that's got a lot in it, and then just seeing how the public playtesting goes, and then yeah. Them, yeah. then strip it back, and then take anything out that's OP or tweak things that way, rather than because if you do it the other way and there's not enough in the book, you've then got to start adding stuff, and then it's you've got to start the balancing all over again. Whereas mm-hmm. if you if it's all in the book to begin with, then it's you don't have to add anything. You're just tweaking and you know taking away the odd rule here or there and, and tweaking points. So I think it's better. I think people are more receptive of a book if it's released and they open it up and there's loads of cool stuff in it rather than opening the book and thinking where the fuck is the rest of it. So I, I don't I don't mind it as long as it gets scaled back and and they, they do realize that there probably are several units in that book that there's just too much going on. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Alrighty. So we we'll probably give that tomorrow, actually. I mean, I think... I, I mean, yeah, fuck it, why not? <laughs> we seem to agree with them more often than not. I know, anyway. it's getting worrying. I guess... I know. Yeah, it's, it's like you say, like, I think when the Warriors book came out, that was a bit of, you know... The kind it was of, underwhelmed. They pulled the carpet from under themselves a wee bit um, because of things like the complexity budget, which was a fucking shambles and should never have been a thing anyway. Um... Whereas I don't think you could argue that the uh, the idea or the demon book are not flavorful, um, maybe maybe a bit strong and a bit ridiculous in places, but um, I did, there's certainly a lot. You get the flavor of the army through really well in both those books, and I guess that's a better place to be in than the, uh, the almost the polar opposite, which was the warriors book when it first came out, where yeah, it was just, it and was I mean bare. They'll they'll get there. I mean, the warriors book is really strong now. And it, but I wouldn't say it's ridiculous. And if that's the power level they're aiming for most of the books, then I think that's a good thing. But I think the, the Warriors book is in a good spot right now. So, And I think they've gotten the Demons book to a similar level much faster than it took them to get to the Warrior book yeah. in its current state. So I think they're on the right lines, but um, I can't foresee the ID book staying in its current form for any particularly long period of time so you know shit's going to change so mm. it's not something i'm particularly worried about well that's a beautiful segue paul thank you very much uh because we're going to get tanker's yeah, but... thoughts on the id book <laughs> so what are you thinking so i think it's probably going to slot in quite comfortably as it stands as a top five book i think there's probably no doubt in my mind that most teams are probably going to take it for etc play it just does everything the Dwarf book does, but better. So there's not really a... I think anyone who's thinking of taking a Dwarf army for a team, I don't see why you wouldn't take ID instead. You've got much the same output damage-wise with shooting. You've got probably better war machines overall, and you've got magic. So yeah, overall, from that point of view, I think it's pretty strong. And then I think they're going to end up with two or three builds... Probably one around the MSU, more MSU core with a lot of single models floated about, and then one around blocks. Probably either Immortals or the uh, is it Battle Lawyers? No, Disciples of Lubar. <laughs> <it. coughs> yeah. Okay. So just, this, you can tell a lawyer wrote that fluff. <laughs> Actually, I think I know an exact lawyer that wrote that fluff. <laughs> uh, sorry, Paul, what were you saying? No, I was just going to say, so looking at the ID book then, Tanka, is this floating your boat? Like, have you played around with building any lists or playing any games with it? Uh, no, not personally. I, I'm just looking. 
I'm not really looking to do an army at the moment, but in the future, I don't think it'll be ID. That being said, though, I do love the scholar. It's probably the funniest, <laughs> the funniest, the funniest rules I've ever seen in my life. Oh, but, fucking Andrew hates it. That's I'm, amazing. I'm getting fucking PTSD just thinking about it. <laughs> I just love the whole being able to bluff your opponent out that they don't think it's the spell you actually did cast and that type of thing. Yeah. Mm. So. It's very, it is quite original. You've got to give them that. Yeah, it's definitely original. That is the uh, the one good thing for it. Paul, you'll be able to confirm this, but did Guillermo actually try and use the Lamassu on UB the other day? <laughs> I think he used that against Fraz, yeah. I don't know how the fuck they managed to, like... I don't think they had a system of, you know, putting a card down and being like, right, what is the card? So I don't know if Guillermo was just being like, no, you guessed wrong, type of thing. <laughs> yes, it's the other spell. <laughs> what, was this on UB, sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was playing Fraz, I think. You've, got a, you've now got to have Discord and a webcam open to to share your opponent. Yeah, like fuck, fuck knows what you're supposed to do. Yeah, they need you need you need something in place. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. After playing against Jack as well, the uh, the Vassal Cavalry is definitely up there for the uh, some of the best chaff in the game. Yeah, just because of the uh, oil skins. The oil skins, the the whole two uh, two attacks. Well, two attacks each from the steed, one from the rider. They're definitely up there for me yeah. as they've got a decent amount of attacks. You can actually put them into the flank of some things with 15 attacks. They're not bad at all. Nice. Interesting. <clears throat> but yeah, the oil skins as well obviously always help. So that that's so you obviously played against the book, which is good because um, neither Paul and I have yet. Um, so what were the other things that stood out? So obviously we've got the Vassal Cav, uh, <coughs> the, the bullshit Lamassu. Yeah, the, I didn't play against Lamassu, but I just love it. Okay. The uh, uh, the slingshots are obviously just bolt throwers with extra rules for twenty more points. Mm. So yeah, that I I think if you've got two twenty points left at the end of a list, you you got to put two in, aren't you? So the uh, and I've played against the gunnery teams a couple of times now and been impressed, especially with the flight the the, the path for thrower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I uh, I've played against the Titan Mortars uh, once now, and I wasn't impressed to be honest. I think it's going to be rocket batteries and um, and flamethrowers to be honest. Yeah, I like the flamethrowers. What um, <laughs> upgrades did you play against with the flamethrowers? Did they have the Kadim manifestation, or was it something else? Uh, did do, did they have any? Did they have any? They must have had something because you have to take one, don't you? Yeah, you get one free option pair. Yeah, per trying time. to. I think it was Kadim, but it didn't come up. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was using Warriors, so they weren't the best target for them, but... Yeah, that's true. Just as extra chaff pieces, they're not bad. Exactly, because they're still so cheap for what they are. I guess with the musicians as well, like, that's quite good, because you're not actually rolling to hit. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't roll a one, basically, right? Yeah. I do love the fact that at the moment, as it stands, you can go engine, double giant, and the... um, the Bastion. <laughs> it fits exactly for exactly thirteen fifty. Did you play against the Bastion? Uh, yeah, I wish I was running one. It's pretty solid what it does. I was using Warriors, so I was always going to push him anyway, so less of a less of an issue. But okay. um, for two ninety for what it does for a unit, I actually think the special choice one is better than mm. the character one, simply because. 
even though it's got a lot of wounds, I don't like putting an expensive character on something without a ward save. Paul, I, I mean, I hope you're listening to this. We fucking nailed that review so far. <laughs> <laughs> I've been checking it off, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd be sh- the only upsetting thing for me really is I'd be shocked if you saw the Titan in many lists. Mm. And knowing what that model used to be in 8th edition and then early 9th, to see what it is now, it's a bit of a difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one, one last thing about the um, Infernal Dwarf. Did you see any bulls kicking about? Because this has been big on the forum, the idea that you can put the uh, Mask of Ages, I will say, um, which is the, you can't, it gives them the be immortal rule. Yeah. yeah, so they can't be wounded or forced. There's a lot of talk about putting that on the Great Bull and basically just sticking the fingers up at cannons and things like that. That works on a Great Bull as well? Yeah. What's that called? Uh... <laughs> the... Don't tell him, Andrew's going to run it in a list. <laughs> England DTC list 2020. <laughs> yeah, there is. Wow, yeah. That seems pretty good for yeah. 60 points. Although, saying that, there are a lot less cannons about than they've ever been. Yeah, that's fair. I guess the, only thing, that, the only thing that would impact is things like parents, right? Because then you're less scared about them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> this is when the, the list come out for ETC next year. All the ID players don't bring a mask because they're like, oh, it's no cannons. <laughs> just, you have cannons and war machines. <laughs> yeah, there is. I, yeah, I'm interested to see if anyone plays with the Anointed as well because I don't think they're very good for where they're at currently. Oh, okay. Oh, shit, we got that mm. one wrong then, Paul. Yeah, that's okay. no, fine. That's not We'll cool. just edit over that. It's cool. <laughs> right, So, um, so top five, you think? strong yeah i i personally think they had a place in most teams before the update so yeah definitely now okay i, I thought it was interesting you said that you, you think they're going to push out dwarves is that just because they can do everything the dwarves currently do in the list but <coughs> they've got a bit better range pressure yeah if you want to take if you, you want to take an msu list an msu dwarf army i just think this does it better if you want to take two or three blocks with combat characters you can swap your magic weapons about as needed. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah, I just think I just think it does what dwarves do a bit better. Obviously, the only the only real reason I think you'd see dwarves over IDs for cop, for copters. Mm. Other than that, I don't think there's a a massively valid argument for not taking infernals over them. God, that's going to confirm everything Fraz has been moaning about for two weeks. <laughs> Deeds must be livid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually really like the levies as well. I think they're in a really good spot. I think a couple of units of forty of those with spear and shield, with an alchemy master backing them up, with flaming banner in both. It's such a cheap use of points and effective. Paul, we got that right as well. We're back on track. <laughs> oh, it feels good. Okay. <laughs> right. So, we'll, anything I add on the infernal dwarf front? Uh, no, I. I think they're in a good place. Okay. Yeah, they've got some interesting uh, new rules, like the slave rules and things. So, yeah, I think time will tell, to be honest, because mm. obviously the war machines look really strong at the moment, but most of the ID lists had gone away from war machines in the old book. So, interesting to see if they uh, they keep their place. Yeah. And did you feel, reading the book, that there was too much of that rules bloat? Because this is another thing, especially on the, the staff internal forum, this has been a, a massive debate that's been ongoing, is whether the book is too complex. 
I don't think it's too complex for someone who's played ID before or played against ID a decent amount before. If you're picking it up fresh with no rules knowledge, with if you've never played ID or played against them before and it's your first army, there's a lot in there, if that makes sense. But no, I think they're okay as it stands. I think there's a, a few things that need tweaking here and there. And I personally hate the predatory spell, so I think that just needs changing. But other than that, I don't think there's too much uh, bloat. Hate it because it's good or hate it because you don't rate it? A bit of both. I think it's got definitely got situations where it could be good, but I just I just don't like it as a as a interaction. I don't think it for me. For oh, I, I probably need to read the fluff in massive detail, but I just don't think it fits what IDR to me. But okay. it might do. But that might just be eight edition and GW glasses tinting it. So hmm. I actually um I listened to the Amersheim put out a podcast where they read through the the big epic poem. That they released, oh, the yeah. episode, which initially yeah. I saw and I was like, "There's no way I'm reading that." Um, but listen to Henry and Casimir do it drunk was actually uh, very entertaining. And uh, <laughs> <coughs> just listen to Henry because obviously Henry's got an inside scoop and all the background stuff. Just listen to him talk about it. It does. I, I, I thought it was very good, and I was surprised to like it because it's essentially I just a rip-off. Like I actually like that they've started to put some interesting artifacts in again as well. I think the the breath and the um the breath and the golden idol are both interesting as well. Mm. Okay, right. So let's get on to the, the main topic, which is your wonderful self. Um first off, it's awesome to have you on. Uh, we've been meaning to have you on for a long time. You're always one of the, the fan favourites to see at an event. Um and I guess we just start with what you're you're best <coughs> known for, which is the MSU stuff. So for anyone that doesn't know, what is MSU and why do you favour it so much when you're when you're in the list? Um, so I guess it comes down to a couple of schools of thought really of MSU. There's the mixed arms MSU, which is typically a bit more elf focused, I'd say. So it's decent combat, decent shooting, decent magic, can do a bit of everything. Normally very good manoeuvrability, especially if it's elven variety. And then you've got the other side of the coin to that, really, which is the full aggro demon slash warrior style. Well, more more likely to be demon and warrior style. So, especially for me, I really like the warrior style. It. I think the addition of lust to warriors, especially, just sold it to me. And uh, the full lust list is still one of the best, and well, I say one of the best, one of the most fun lists I've ever played with. It just does everything you want in a list, and it can flee and rally like lizardmen. <laughs> so there's not really a there's not really a downside to it. So yeah, I guess that's probably the two schools of thought. You've either got full aggressive, with lots of small combat units that can deliver a lot more punch than their size looks like they can, or you've got the mixed arm style that tries to whittle down opponents a little bit before you engage on your terms. But primarily, it's about engaging on your terms. It's probably I'd sum up MSU as more than anything else to me, anyway. Do you um, miss the old <coughs> version of Lust from the book? Uh, I'm trying to remember what the old version was. It was... Light troops plus two movement? Uh, I never actually played with them at the time, but um, yeah. I know that playing against them, they were annoying to play because you could <laughs> never catch them. <laughs> Yeah. At least, at least with the current version, you've at least got a downside to uh, to lust where you can't charge the next turn. Mm. But uh, yeah, 
but now I've only played with the current version of Lust with the um the Rally on Cobbler did. Yeah, it's really fucking strong. <laughs> yeah. So have you always favoured MSU then? You said that you've obviously played over 18 years. Like, at what point did you discover, oh, this this is for me, this is how I want to play the game? <laughs> um, it was actually towards the end of 7th edition when uh, Ogre MSU wasn't actually very strong at the time. And uh, you didn't have really uh, access to anything that made them, them good in the current rules. And uh, that's when I actually started playing MSU. And... Uh, it was actually uh, Mo Ashraf who used to run Clash of Swords tournaments. That's where I really started. That's the first tournament that I took. Um, it's the first tournament that I took Ogre MSU to at a tournament level, anyway, other than playing it at the club. And uh, that's really where I fell in love, just being able to fit so much on the board, and it gives you a sense with, especially back in Eighth Edition, before scoring units were such importance to the game. It gave you quite a sense of accomplishment to outmaneuver someone and pick the right charges at the right times. So I definitely think that that's something that's altered a little bit with scoring units. But uh, you can still do MSU, and obviously there are still some very strong MSU armies out there. So do you think it's quite a, a hard playstyle to master compared to maybe some others? No and yes, I'm going to say. It's, uh, it's quite forgiving in the fact that you have a lot of units and often a fair amount of redundancy depending on how you've built the list. Okay. So, for example, I typically will be known for spamming something. But um, I, if you can stack two or three units on a flank and one doesn't perform and the other two do, you're probably still up on that flank, for example. Whereas, So from that aspect, no, I would definitely say that they are pretty strong overall. And obviously, if it's a scoring unit, even more so, because obviously the missions are so important to Ninth Age as it stands that it's such a big instance. But on the flip side of that, there are some instances where MSU can be a bit of a hindrance. If you're playing against someone with two or three blocks that you can't really engage face on and they have decent shooting and magic supporting that, you will end up just losing a lot of games because you... You either have a choice of sitting off and taking a small loss or engaging on their terms. I guess that's the thing that's, that scares me about MSU. And it's, it's, it's cool that we've got you on, actually, because over the last couple of weeks, Paul and I have been talking about MSU lists and uh, like Paul's playing a lot of Ogres just now, so we've been talking about you know lists that do that. And um, I've been watching a lot of uh, Watch These Dice battle reports, so that's uh, one of the Swissy TC guys who does them, and he's got a very MSU playstyle, and he plays Ogres. And the thing that scares me about MSU the most, in terms of if I was to pilot it, is just that you, you have to rely <coughs> on multiple units to win yeah. big combats. And I've just got this fear of failing charges. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it comes down, I think there's a couple of, you can mitigate it slightly if you've got anything that can charge by itself and hold, even if you know it will die afterwards. A lot of games I'll end up, put in units that i know will die eventually after a couple of rounds of combat but will win on the first turn just to basically pin people in place where i want them and so it's almost like reverse chaff mm. you are feeding people points to, well it is chaff you're feeding people points to keep their unit where you want it basically but it's just by charging rather than chaffing so i think you can mitigate it that way but yeah overall there is always that sense that you are always a bad movement phase or a bad panic test in some armies away from, from losing a game. Especially if you play outside of bubbles a lot with 
especially L Farm, L MSU, that type of thing. If you're playing outside of bubbles, you will have a game where you just lose a thousand points to a Banachair. I think Andrew's too scarred from playing Empire to, to do that. <laughs> like, I mean, Andrew feels panic checks when he's in like, a discipline 10 reroll bubbles. Panic checks with VC, fuck's sake. Yeah, I do think it's uh, an interesting one because I think the game is definitely, I think nine pages a game compared to past editions is definitely more formulaic than it's ever been. There's a way to build armies to do certain things and it does funnel you into a little bit of that mindset. So I think coming from playing a lot of 6th and 7th edition especially, not having a bit, well, having a BSB, but it not allowing you to re-roll panic checks, it got people used to that mindset. So a lot of people will play, in my opinion, quite scared around panic bubbles, making sure they're always in panic bubbles just in case, rather than actually being in a better position on the board. Mm, okay. Guilty. So, <laughs> <laughs> and don't get me wrong, it definitely mitigates how much bad can happen and it will mitigate you in a lot of it will mitigate a lot of lost points, but it also has then the, the, the downside in that you can't capitalize on board positioning as much and gain those bigger points if you need them. Yeah, I guess no, it's like you say, right? It's such like a different mindset. It's about approaching the game and and you know just playing a, not even riskier, but just being more I don't know, not even gung ho, just confident in that you've got contingencies in place. Yeah, yeah. I think it is just inherently it's safer in one aspect because obviously you can't lose as many points if you're trying to split your army up and avoid losing points. But if you are trying to push a game you can lose a lot of points because you're trying to pick up big points. I think when you're playing with an MSU army as well, it kind of depends on your opponent, how the game will go. If your opponent castles up in a corner, you're probably not going to play that game for big points. If your opponent deploys in the middle of the board, you're probably going to go for the 20. Is how I've always, mm. not always take it, but uh, yeah, that feeds into it a lot. I've got to say, my, my first, when I started playing ninth. Uh, you were the the kind of the king of the scene with the MSU uh, ogres, and the first time I played <coughs> MSU was actually against you at uh, the mids team event like a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, that is generally the only time I've played a game in ninth age where I felt that you were playing a different game from me. Like, <laughs> I was like, honestly, hand on heart, the only time I walked away from a table feeling that I was completely and utterly outplayed in every single phase, and I had. Because I felt in control of that game, and I lost 20-0. <laughs> so, evidently, I was not in control of that game. <laughs> Were you playing an MSU army as well, Andrew? No, I was playing um, I was playing Empire. Empire. Okay. And I, Tank was playing Dread Elves MSU. And, which, you know, traditionally Dread Elves Empire is a, a good matchup for the Empire. <coughs> um, shot the shit out of him the first couple turns. Felt that he was kind of on the back foot. Advanced to put the boot to him basically uh, <laughs> and then he took my block off in two turns <laughs> and I was kind of sat there going oh shit and then he alchemied off the steam tank and I was like oh this is uh, this is going to be a 20 isn't it <laughs> as he saunters onto the objective to take that as well <laughs> but yeah. I guess that's just and the that, power right you can control play and that list sums up MSU more than any other to me in that no shooting no shooting no shooting dread elves is uh, interesting, let's put it that way, to play with and against. So you were saying that about like ninth has been formulaic in terms of the list building, so what do you mean by that? How do you go about writing those lists? Are there certain things that you start with, like some people start with core, the characters, how do you approach it from a kind of like MSU mindset? 
So I guess that's probably, yeah. So for me, I think most people, are, most people write their core, their characters, and then see what they've got left. Mm. Whereas I typically, I have started using characters a lot more recently with warriors, especially, but uh, pre- until around six, 12 months ago, my approach would be write my army, write everything I wanted in the list, write how much core was as a minimum, Darren. And then if I had 300 points for characters, I only had 300 points for characters. If I had 600, I had 600. So my, my approach is to probably start at the bottom and go upwards rather than a lot of people typically start with characters. They know they want a level four. They know they want a BSB. They know they want a, a different combat general. So I think that's probably the, the main approach I've always taken with MSU is whatever units you want to put in, put those in first and then just see what you can fit with characters afterwards. How do you start your list, Paul? Just out of interest. I just, you know, in a, in a daze, just, <laughs> just with a crayon, just scrolling <laughs> on the floor. No, I, I, I don't know. Like, I guess I normally have an idea that, oh, there's a particular unit that I want to try. Or I'll maybe see something online, reading through the forums or whatever, and someone's got, like, an interesting combination of units and I think, oh, that's good, but I don't like the rest of it. So how would I change it for my playstyle? But I would say that MSU as a style has never really appealed to me, partly because I got into the game for the mass rank and file aspect. So even though I played Warriors, where you don't really have huge units, <coughs> I would still always want, like, you know, a block of Warriors, a big block of Chosen, you know, yeah. stuff, like, stuff like that, because I thought it looked cool. And... So, like, yeah, I think for me, like, the whole MSU approach is, it is, to me, that's harder. But that might just be because it doesn't appeal to me, and so I have to kind of look at it from the outside in type of thing. But the more I play, the more value I can see in it. So even though I wouldn't say I ever play MSU, I'm probably more likely now to bring, you know, a couple of units of just cheap cav that I can use for scoring or they can be somewhat effective in combat. Whereas before I would always want a block of 10. Mm. Yeah. So like I can, I can see the value in that a lot more now. And I think that only comes with experience. Like unless it's, you've got a very clear cinematic aesthetic that you want for your army that requires a lot of units. To me, MSU probably doesn't appeal to a lot of new players. Yeah, no, I can see it to be honest. I, I really started playing MSU in 7th back when it wasn't, although it was sold as a, a rank-and-file game, it wasn't actually played as one. Mm. Yeah. That's probably uh, where I'm still still got that love for. I mean, you've obviously been in the hobby for a long time, Tanka. I mean, has the MSU thing, has that really traditionally revolved around certain books like Sylvan Elves? And has it kind of spread from there as people have realised, like, oh, you can actually do this with other books? Or have people always tried it with... Uh, yeah, so I'd say from my experience, well, my experience at club level, especially earlier on and playing earlier on in tournaments, was there's definitely a few armies. So Sylvan Elves did it quite well with MSU. Beastman did MSU very well. Um, I know Skaven aren't really an MSU army, but the old 20-man blocks of Skaven with as many of um, shooting as you could fit in used to do it. So no, not MSU in exactly. It was as close to MSU as you could get. Those are really the three that I saw quite a lot that that did it. If that makes sense. Okay. The five man, the five man arch units for for wood elves was definitely a a building block of it as well. Yeah. 
I mean, what about you, Andrew? Like, how do you approach lists? Do you come at it looking at it like characters or units, or do you kind of approach it like a style? Like, how do you want the list to actually operate? And then you look at what units fit that best. I guess I kind of uh, try and have an idea about what I want the list to do. And then, I don't know, I, I guess it's, I'm kind of, it's indicative of the armies I play. So both Empire and Vampires are character-reliant, um, and they get mm-hmm. a lot of their synergies. Um, and for Vampires, basically, you know, the army um, and, and their characters. So you can't... I don't th- They can't be as liberal uh, with their characters as some armies, although you can certainly do it with Empire. Things like the Village Idiot idea is very, you know, MSU using the order system um, but uh, yeah I would start with the concept and then I normally actually do core with a vague idea what I want my characters to be and then go out but I just find this fascinating because everyone does it right, everyone writes lists but I think mm. it's it's interesting to how how people do it because there is normally quite a stark difference in how people approach and I think a lot of us do start with core um, but I, I'm con- increasingly starting to doubt whether that's actually the best idea or not because I think you, you kind of fall into the trap, and certainly I did this a lot with Empire writing lists, is that you <coughs> you start to build your list and your core, which I think is almost a self-defeating strategy in a lot of ways. You end up bringing the same stuff, because you bring the same core. You find what works, and then it's hard to kind of deviate from that, I suppose. Yeah, and you kind of get... You, I think because core is such a big block of your army, um, if you know that something works, then you kind of get locked into that and... Yeah, you end up taking, you know, 700 points of characters to make a 400-point unit work. Do you ever... I mean, is there a, a bloodline in the VC book that allows you to take 900 points of core? Yeah, you so if, that you, with the... if you go independent, you get 900 points of core. Okay. Have you done that? You have played independent lists. I have done that, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, independent... Is that easier when it comes to list building? Because you're not as constrained as much? Yeah, because, I mean, VC have got massive advantage as well that they can take chaff and core. Um, so the independence can I think independent is actually stronger in most instances than bloodlines simply because you get reduced core, you get access to all the my blood powers which are still very good um, and you've just got a greater degree of flexibility in how you're and you're writing your lists um, right. because I mean bloodline armies tend to be quite specialised apart from things like maybe the von Karsteins because they're a bit of the, the vanilla ones but the other bloodlines are the you know, you kind of, without reading the list, you know what the army is vaguely going to be once you see the bloodline. Uh, whereas independents just have a bit more flexibility, I guess. Uh, but before they did that, too, the independents, uh, necromancer armies were a big thing for a while. Um, because they were the ones that got the, the reduced core, but they've kind of gone off. But you can't really, I guess, go back to MSU. I tried to actually write a straight MSU list where it was minimum units of ghouls and core with Vanguard just for scoring. And then it was all kind of, you know, given the, the vampire courtiers all the flying upgrade and Farclax and things. And I actually think Strigoi are probably one of the few things that you could probably get away with an MSU list with vampires. Maybe if you took Dark Coaches, you could do it a wee bit more. But really, I don't know if vampires are the, the army you go to if you're trying to play MSU, to be honest. Have you done vampire MSU before, Tanker? <laughs> uh, yeah, but not in this edition, unfortunately. They used to be able to do it quite well with little units of black knights and that type of thing back in the day, but no, not uh, not at the moment. I think they can do quite a lot of single model armies if they wanted to, yeah. so you can take two coaches, two coaches, two altars, that type of thing, or coaches to um, two coaches to um, 
shrieking horrors. There's definitely things you can do around it, but yeah, overall, the, the stronger list typically have a couple of blocks, a couple of decent sized blocks, don't they? So, yeah. I guess there is mechanic, like if you're building that into the list, it's, it's so strong that you're not really playing to the army's strength if you're only taking 10, you know, models of, or units of 10 guys that can easily be yeah. Yeah. And then you're actually bringing anyone back. Yeah, I mean, I guess, and this goes back to Tinker's point about the list building is, um, and something I was going to ask is like, how how much scoring is the right amount of scoring? Because um, I think mm-hmm. one, of, one of the reasons that the vampires can't do an MSU very successfully is that most of their scoring comes from core, and really it's the vampire knights, and I think that's why the vampire knights are so popular at tournaments because they score, and they're yeah. they're autonomous and they can go off and fight. Uh, whereas the other stuff, you really need to take blocks because they will get take casualties in the game um but i'm always i guess it's another thing that i find really interesting is how many scoring is the right amount yeah i i personally think as much as feasibly possible is not a bad approach in a lot of uh, a lot of armies but realistically i think you're looking at minimum four okay. i think you can do three but yeah minimum four for me and i think probably aiming around the six mark is where i would go typically i actually think that because of the the scoring method in scoring a lot of armies that mmu is actually not a bad approach for a lot of armies to take but we just don't typically see it in the uk i guess there's only one objective that would really ever punish you for that right like unless you're playing flags and it's a bad matchup then really msu isn't a disadvantage when it comes to the secondary yeah, and even even in flags, if you have an army that if you're playing, it's very much dependent even then because if you're playing someone without much damage output at range, and they have to engage to fight, they probably if you've got an MSU army that not many armies want to push against an MSU army anyway. So unless you unless you're playing a defensive army with good shooting and magic, you're probably okay for banners in most instances unless you, unless you have some really easy to kill scoring is the the only concern really kind of tying into the the secondary then and the msu playstyle. do you think that games are basically won and lost in the list building mm, interesting uh i don't think in the list building i think and it will i think it still is and it always will be the most important phase is deployment so i think a lot of games are won and lost there but no, not not in list building per se, or at least not big win, big lot, big loss. If that makes sense, I think if you're in a bad matchup, if you're in a bad matchup and you come back with zero, especially in a team environment, if you're in a bad matchup and you come back with zero, that's not really ex- that's not really accessible. There, unless something horrific has gone wrong, there's nothing. You're not telling me there's nothing you could do to bring one, two, three points back. Yeah. So I think that. I think that I think it's a lot of the time, it's a lot of people, maybe not ego is the right word, but a lot of people don't want to play that negative game of, I'm going to castle up here, I'm going to deploy between these two bits of impassable, and I'm going to get five points minimum. Hmm. Especially single, especially at singles event, no one wants to play like that typically. Yeah, I guess there's a, there's a big difference between single um, single tournaments and team tournaments. Yeah. Especially so ETC, right? Yeah, definitely. I think it's why MSU is actually a lot stronger in singles as well. Because I think people will engage an MSU army more often in single events. And you can push harder in singles events and take more risks in MSU when you want to. Whereas in team events, if especially if people don't play against MSU very often, 
they'll often castle up like they'll often castle up and it will be tough to break them down okay that's interesting so like in a team tournament you know if you're on a team and you're all sitting around talking about lists do you find that people are hesitant to include an MSU list for that reason because it's harder for you to get mobs because people can just counter deploy you a little bit harder <laughs> if they don't want to play you yeah, I think the MSU the, the MSU lists that work in teams are typically something that is one extreme or the other, if that makes sense. So you've very good magic and she's skaven, uh, vermin swarm, sorry. Or you've <laughs> very good shooting and magic with vermin swarm, or you've got very fast, aggressive units with warriors or demons, that type of thing. I think the the MSU team lists are very skewed to one extreme. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, I mean, obviously, ETC is <coughs> the best of the best type of environment. <laughs> obviously not, you find, we were there. No, I mean, you know, you need you need some people there propping up the bottom tables, right? I mean, they're really there just for fucking filling numbers. But, like, <laughs> do you find that when you're playing against very good players, do they tend to respond quite differently to playing against an MSU list than less experienced players more than just because they're better like do you think like do other good players appreciate that playstyle more like do they respect it a little bit more or do they just think oh i don't have to play against this it's fine yeah i think it's i think it's just familiarity i think that when you've played a lot of games and you've played against msu a lot you know what they want to do you know how to stop that happening a lot better i think the first few times you play against msu you will de- well a lot of people may deploy how they normally deploy they'll push the game how they normally play whereas once you've experienced it a lot you know you can't let an msu army get around you you can't let it do what it wants with its movement phase that's an interesting point so how do you win and or lose with msu what are the, the key things that you need to get right so deployment phase is often one and i think that's why for me msu strung still because it lets you often counter drop your opponent until such a point where your opponents deployed their whole army and you've still got a third of yours, half of yours left mm. to stack a flank or to stack the middle if needed, etc. You can counter deploy your opponent quite well in that sense. But I think outside of deployment, it's just the movement phase. If you can get an MSU army where it wants to be, so you can start to push start to push as needed turn three, four you can just roll up people's armies with it. If you get an oppo- if you've got an opponent who lets himself get in a position where they can't turn to face a flanking force that's come in, then you've probably won the game anyway. Do you think that the MSU gives you more redundancy then in deployment? Just if it's the, the most oh, important yeah, phase. Yeah. Okay. Hundred percent. I think it can be a bit of a two edged sword in that if you depending on what mission you're playing, if you drop something slightly wrong for instance, I've played a few games in banners where I've dropped a unit in slightly wrong position and your opponent will suddenly drop against it just to take that unit off turn one. Mm, And that's kind of a two-edged sword because you've lost your small scoring unit, so you've lost, you're down 14-6 at the end of your, before you've had a turn, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I think there's there's definitely pros, don't get me wrong, with MSU, but there are also quite a few cons. So, yeah, I think... um, I definitely think it's, a, as I said, definitely a better singles overall for me personally. Mm. But, um, okay. So how would, how would you rate MSU generally then in a singles tournament as a playstyle? 
if you were looking at like 50 lists in a singles tournament i i would always personally i well normally unless i'm practicing for etc i would typically always take an msu list just because i enjoy how it plays more and i don't typically like characters so i find by not having character i typically hate playing with expensive single models so by avoiding expensive single models it pretty much you down msu i always find so no yeah. i get that i fucking bring in tons of characters as well i like just to bring really expensive units and then i lose them instead <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but um yeah i think msu in singles is definitely a a different beast to uh to teams and then in teams of course i think you can have msu armies but you you have to skew them as i said that's probably the, the main difference out of interest which do you prefer playing in teams or singles Ooh, teams is just a whole new dimension to it the whole being able to finish your game going and see how the rest of the guys are doing seeing if people are up if people are down and then you've always got that that chance to tell stories after the game more that type of thing everyone's in it together yeah. and especially if you're playing against the country that you know you've played against a lot and you get on really well with there's some really good games like we we typically end up playing the swedes every year somehow and it's always the best game of the tournament that's cool but um, outside of that, I I enjoy playing singles still, obviously. I still go to a lot of singles events. But yeah, you can't really beat teams overall. Yeah. Something you said earlier on, actually, you just reminded me there. You said that most of the time when you're playing your games, you tend to play in tournaments. Yeah. So are you just that well-practiced with your MSU stuff that you don't really need to practice before you go to an event with a new list? Because you kind of know what you're with it anyway. Like, you find that if you're playing one style of MSU, when it, are you building a list that caters to that style with another army? In which case, it doesn't really matter that you've not necessarily practiced with it because you kind of know what you're doing. Yeah, pretty much. I used to play a lot more games, obviously, when we had a club here. But since our club's dried up and I've only really started playing UB since COVID again, I pretty much, yeah, would just write a list, take it to a tournament, and then write another list at the end of the tournament for the next tournament, that type of thing. Wow. I guess when you've been playing that long, though, like, you know, you've obviously built up such a big amount of experience that it's not really a handicap, because it's not like you haven't played the game. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Whereas for everyone else, it's like, oh, I've got to write a list, got to practice with it, got to work out how this thinks. Maybe that's because, maybe that's because people generally change their lists by quite a lot across iterations like i guess yeah. it's if you're yeah, sticking with the same style that helps yeah it's definitely something that comes up a lot so i may only change my list by a thousand points of my list may change or 800 points of my list may change but they typically don't drastically change between events mm. it might just be i know what my core did i know my solid i know that character solid i know this unit I chosen is solid. I'll swap out these two units of knights for two Faldrake elders or something like that. Okay. So yeah, typically though, when I'm looking at swapping things out in a list, it'll either be, it'll normally be something I'm pretty comfortable with that gets swapped to something else I haven't tried before or tried in a long time, let's put it that way. That's almost identical to uh, what Gareth said when we had him on. Because he said... Um, Basically, what his his one core bit of advice to players would be, if you're trying to get better at the game, in quotes, um, 
find a list and just tweak it and keep keep going with that concept. Find a concept that you like and then just tweak it. And it's just little, <coughs> little tweaks after every game. You're not drastically changing it because you're just reinforcing the skill set that you need to play that list. I, I think you can be pretty drastic with the change as long as it's down the same lines, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. You can swap. I think there's no harm in swapping out a, a thousand point unit for another thousand point unit if it's still doing the same role, if that makes sense. Mm. But yeah, I think you if you don't want to drastically alter your you don't want to alter your avoidance army to be a full out combat army in one one swing, if that makes sense. You want to iterate. So you're obviously a very experienced player. You know, you've got a very particular playstyle. How do you approach a game at a tournament? Like, obviously, you, you must know the books fairly well. Do you still do what most of us scrubs do and, like, you know, read, read people's lists and have to oh, like, yeah, things in the book and all that kind of shit? Yeah, definitely. I pretty much will always have a copy of my opponent's list and I'll write on bits on there just for just for reference, what they do, that type of thing. Any magic residents in the list, that type of thing. Any ward saves, any special items that I don't know, that type of thing. I think the the main thing is that I think that a lot of people don't factor in quite enough is that they don't really... A lot of people end up counter-deploying their opponent and they don't end up thinking how they want their deployment to look irrespective of their opponent, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, it's a dangerous game to get into if you've... If you've misdeployed something and you haven't realised, especially if you haven't realised it at the time, that's interesting. Because uh, I can't remember. I think it was I was talking to Michael. It may have been in our chat hall where we were talking about deployment, and we were. I think Michael said something like, "Do you guys have set deployment maps where basically you have a rough idea about?" no matter what's in front of you, you want this in the middle kind of thing, you want this on the flank kind of thing. Do, oh, you, right. do you have that kind of thing, Tanker, or do you kind of look at not, the table and then kind of put the, the map together after that? Yeah, not typically for my army. I'll often have a thought of how my opponent's going to deploy, if that makes more sense more. Yeah. So if I look if I look at a board and I see there's a hill and a building fairly central to my opponent's deployment zone, they're probably going to castle one side of the building or the other. I'll deploy if I'm dropping. I don't often drop very often, so that's probably another one that I like. I actually prefer my opponent's drop. So I like to deploy afterwards and take my time and think that through. Mm. So yeah. I think part of the the UB tournament thing that we're doing just now, like that's something that we've been doing as a team. Like you wouldn't probably know judging by our scores. But we have actually been like, and you know, talking about okay, you're going to be paired into this guy. How do you think they're going to deploy? And as an exercise, I think it's really good, and it's a really good way to get into thinking. And I, I I would agree with you that the deployment in this game is so huge that if you can become better at that one part of the game, your scores will inevitably go up. Yeah, massively. I think we were going to do it for this year's ETC, but obviously with. curtailing now we're not going we haven't started yet but uh i know that jake was looking at creating a map pack of every single map and also drawing on every single deployment zone onto the maps and where you're more likely to engage and a bit of an analysis of which deployment side you want if you have a push defensive army that type of thing okay cool we were looking to go into detail on it this year yeah did you see that that the the 
pack that the American guys put out last year. That was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was really impressive. It, like it's it insane, it. It insane. Yeah, yeah, that was Caps, wasn't it? That did that. Yeah, like it's yeah. it's incredible the, the amount of detail that you know the teams put in, and obviously it shows because they get good results. But like, it's I would I would encourage anybody who's actively trying to get better at the game to like at least think about that part of it more. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess it's something you have to be flexible in. Like, is obviously we're in a good position now where we're in an event where we can see the maps in advance. Where if you're at a tournament, normally you just rock up to the table. And you have to just kind of judge it. Yeah. There and then, right? So I guess it's just something that you get better at experience. Yeah, and I, I do think it's it's some being able to look at a board very quickly and make changes on it is quite a, an interesting one. So I played Craig at a tournament, re- well, wasn't actually that recent, before last DTC now, actually, but um, he played on table one for rounds one to four, and no one had mentioned the terrain to him, and he was using his MSU avoidance Ogre Army, and the first thing I did when I looked at the table was uh, called the judge over and made them redeploy all the terrain. <laughs> it, just wasn't, it just wasn't set up for how a nine-page game should play, and we both had a chuckle about it as soon as I did it. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I mean, if I was stuck on the same table, I probably would have said to the second person, being like, do you mind if we change this? Because I've just played on this table for three hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, funny. yeah, onto that one as well, in single events especially, I find team events are, are more of an unknown, if that makes sense. I find single events in the UK especially that there are a few players in the scene that they can get away with certain things and certain sc- scores in games that they shouldn't be able to because opponents go into a bit of a negative mentality that they're going to lose before the game started. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I think this is a massive thing, actually. I think there's like a there's an echelon of players, and especially in the UK. I don't know if it's just because obviously we play in that, so we've noticed it more. But there's an echelon of players that if anyone outside that echelon gets drawn against them, they're automatically thinking they're on the back foot rather than looking at it objectively if if that person wasn't in command of that that list you know you might not think it's such a bad matchup but because it's yeah. got you know tanker's name on it you're automatically think right tanker's, <coughs> tanker's really good he's going to fucking pump me here it's about conserving points rather than actually going out and trying to win the game yeah or conversely there'll be risky charges taken which shouldn't be taken and to try and get big points the other way mm. yeah i think yeah i think playing your own game is definitely the the biggest the, the simulation advice for a lot of people. It kind of linked into that stuff. So you, you've got your list, you've got your MSU list, you're at the table, you've had the scan. Um, what, what are you thinking when you're going into that game? Is it all, just right off the bat, it's like, how do I win this objective? Is that the, the end all? Or is it much more, you know, like you say, trying to out-deploy the, 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 your opponent and looking for avenues? And by the end of deployment, are you looking to see, right, this is the score I'm going to get? I think it depends on what your opponent's army set up to do, but typically it will be how do I win the objective? Okay. So it's 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 one of my favourite and least favourite bits about Ninth Age in general. But the objectives are such a big swing in a game that if you go into a game just trying to smash your opponent, it it's grey and it can work, but I don't th- I personally for me it's not the approach I normally go with. So yeah, definitely how do I uh, how do I win the objective? And then the big thing for me is especially with some of the lists that I take, is, as I say, I think Ninth Edge is a bit formulaic in a way. People know, well, especially in the UK meta, 
people have played against a lot of lists a fair few times know what's going to happen. So anything that could introduce a bit of chaos into a game, taking that 11-inch charge your opponent thinks you shouldn't, charging something where you might not win the combat on a whim, or charging something where you'll only win the combat if you get a spell off, that type of thing. There's a lot of things where opponents put themselves in that situation thinking you won't take it. Mm. So, uh, Do you find that taking those risks actually pay off more than you, you think they would, even if it's not a 50-50? Even it's, uh, you know, taking those risks might only result in, like, 20% success, but that's actually 10% more than what it should. Do you find that taking those risks actually in the long term are better in a tournament? I think it, I think it comes down to where you are in the tournament and where you want to finish. If it's last game and you're on table two and you know that 18 points will probably win you the event, then I think it's worth it. If it's round three and you're on... Foot thirty points already. I think he played more conservatively, but yeah, I think um, I think it comes down to that. And also, I think anything that you've got that can tip the scales, as you said, if it's a twenty percent chance of winning the game twenty nil, but it's only a five percent chance of losing the game twenty nil, then I think you 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 it and see if it's worth it. I think anything that can tip odds in your favour even slightly is also massive as well. Yeah, I think it's. Certainly, in my experience, as more games you play and, you know, when you're trying to get better, I think a lot of players would naturally think, oh, you've got to be quite cagey and conservative more than you, you probably need to be. So actually, like, taking risks, if you if you, if there's obviously a chance that it can massively pay off, then I think less experienced players or intermediate players might look at that and think, wow, you know, a good player wouldn't actually do that, whereas in actual fact, they probably do it more than you think. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I really struggle with, but I do quite a lot in real games, is I typically don't measure a lot of charges for my opponent. I, I obviously played in a game where you had to guess measure a lot, so I'm quite good at eyeballing distances. Ooh. So I might push a unit up, and it, it may be a 10, it may be an 11 charge, but I'll push a unit up and I won't measure what my opponent needs to get it. And <laughs> I think that, that kind of puts your opponent in a bit of doubt that, your opponent's kind of second starting to second guess himself straight away with just realize i've taken realize i've taken i've left that opportunity on if i do realize that opportunity's on does he have a counterplay against it that type of thing i think you can kind of get in someone's head right from the get yeah no i don't do that because i'm not a good player but <laughs> like i have often thought as soon as i measure something they're going to know why i'm measuring it yeah yeah so then that's going to change what they do. So, like, more recently I've been like, I need to be sure that, you know, if I put this unit here, I know it's in line of sight, but I'm not going to double-check and make sure that they see me do it type of thing. So, yeah. like, that's interesting. I guess, yeah, if you played, like, the previous editions where you've, you can't pre-measure, yeah. that's, that's an interesting skill to have, actually. And I think game. also measuring out what your unit can do in two or three turns time is a way of getting your opponent's head quite well. If you measure out where your unit of cavalry can march to in two turns <laughs> i think there's definitely uh there's definitely scope for things like that in the game as well no wonder you fucking love that lamasu <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh the lam lamasu if, if i could get lamasu into warrior and god dark god star me <laughs> oh, oh that would be like the ultimate combo oh i'm doing this to andrew next time you play oh, I'm going to measure the unit, and they're going to, I'm going to measure Okay, so I can march here. Okay, turn three, I can be behind them. He's going to be like, what the fuck are you doing? By the end of that game, I'll have taken up smoking. 
I do I do think that is just to go back onto MSU, sorry, I think that's probably one of the the biggest things for people that I've ever seen do well with MSU. That they play two or three turns ahead typically. Right. I think that is one of the things of MSU. If you can the more turns ahead you can play, the better you'll be with them. So what does that mean then? What does what does playing ahead mean? Is that just a case of you know, thinking like my unit go there, his unit's going to go there. Like, what do I do if he goes there? Is that just kind of like your thought process, or is it more sophisticated than that? Uh, a bit of thought process, a bit of a bit of group feel, just kind of figuring out where your opponent's going to be in turn. Example: If you're in deployment zone, where's your opponent going to? Where's your opponent's unit going to be in turn three? That type of thing, turn four. And I think that's something that, as you play a lot of games, and I find that especially the more games I play, where I go second you get more of a feel of that for you get more of a feel for that special turn. If your opponent pushes up quite aggressively, then you know that's typically how the game is going to go. Mm-hmm. And it just gives you more time to get that thought process going. And also just things like the amount of capture the middle games that I've won that I shouldn't have simply because I've played forgetting the objective turn five and six guaranteed. It really shocks me when you look back at a lot of capture the middle games where your opponent has an army that can't be moved off objectives and yet you've managed to either get them in a position where you can charge them because they've over-engaged or you've got them in a position where you've chaffed them too much. Yeah, I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't do, I can't do that. I think there's, there's definitely something to be said for players that can can conserve chaff until 2006. I, I, yeah, on could, purpose. Yeah, on, on purpose. yeah, on purpose. Not, yeah, that's, that's a key not point. Not like yeah. walking up to the table and be like, "Why are your dogs still alive?" <laughs> oh, because they fled and rallied and yeah. behind that hill, and I've just left them there. <laughs> yeah, I think that there is a big, um, a big piece around, and I know when Will was on the team a few years ago, he did start it with a, with an app where you actually enter your scores as you're going, and it tells you what the points difference is and how many what that tournament score is straight away. Mm. So you can get that feel, especially if you've got. You've got quite a, a combat army that has to engage, and you know you're down 12, 13, 14 points, 14, 6 or so at the end of turn 2 or 3, then you can kind of work out how to get back into it. I think if you get to a point where you're adding victims up at the end and you're not, you're a 1,000 points different to what you expected from your opponent, I think that's a bit of a... That's something where you should have fought for a return or two earlier, just what points you can get and how you can close that gap up. Yeah, that was something that we tried to do last year, right? When we were at ETC? Yeah, and I, I actually, I was just about to ask this because um, I think it's a it's a complete skill which is learned through blood, sweat, and tears. The ability to accurately predict games, and I think that most players are nowhere near as good at it as they think are. Um, <coughs> but you can tell the players that are. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree, and I I still fall foul of it a bit that you often predict the game with a singles mentality on. Yeah. Whereas you're anticipating your opponent's going to come out and try and get points as well. Whereas the thing is, if you've if you've put yourself into a green matchup and your opponent's put themselves into a red matchup, A, does your opponent think it's a red matchup? And B, if it is, you should be playing as if your opponent's are in two for now to get seven points. Yeah. And if they do get seven points and you only bring 13 back in a good matchup, then that's not a good matchup from a team point of view. Yeah. I'm just looking at the, the the mental image. I can just see like team writing it down as they go. Totally know where they are in the game. They know they can <laughs> foresee the last turn, and then it cuts to us at the other end of the table, <laughs> and we're all just like looking about each other, like shrugging, like being like, "Oh, fucking, what's gonna go?" 
It was the eternal words of ETC 2019. Uh, so, Paul, you've got an amber. Oh, that should be a red. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's fucked in, it? <laughs> Yeah, I think especially in teams as well, the actual three-minute coach's timeout is a big part of it. Now, I am not very good at using my timeout. And I, I'll admit to that one. I, I hate... I, well, I don't hate using it. I just often will use it after something has gone above where I expected it to yeah. and uh, take it a bit out of context and uh, try and push a game when I shouldn't or try and say the game's more lost than it is. So, yeah, I definitely think there's a skill on the other side in being able to take a breath, take a minute and uh, think about what's just happened as well. Yeah, we had a big thing last year, and it was um, which I, I found incredibly useful, and it was don't call a coach's time to get confirmation of a decision that you've already decided to make. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see it. Because we kind of like the year before, and I was guilty of this because um, I, I, I had this idea that I would call coaches' timeout normally deployment, if not you know turn one or two, um, because you could kind of see what way the, the game's going to go. On, with hindsight, that wasn't the, the effective way to use it, um, and I think a lot of time in Scotland, anyway, I don't know, we probably did it wrong as per usual, but I think <laughs> we're calling coaches over like, should I take that charge? when they'd already kind of decided that they weren't going to do it or they were going to do it, and then you're just wasting yeah. that, that coach's time. And like you say, it's so yeah. valuable to have that, actually, that bird's I'd, eye view. I'd, I'd love to see another... I'd love to see two in an event, but I know it's not very hard to happen. Yeah. I've always kind of like... See, over the last... Obviously, playing at ETC, I've always kind of fancied the idea of going back and doing it as a coach. Um, because, it's again, it's a totally underrated skill set. People think that the, the coach is kind of just the beer caddy, but I, th- I think a lot of teams are built up on the reliability of their coach to assess games and put yeah, information yeah. up and down the line yeah i think if you look at some of the some of the teams that have done really well over recent years they've had really good coaching in place yeah so yeah, yeah that definitely uh, there's a skill in it there's i guess there's a lot of like shit that goes on behind the scenes like what you were saying Tanka, about you know putting together these packs looking at maps and getting yeah. people to talk about how they're going to deploy <coughs> certain situations and i think it's I think being a people person works really well for us as well. You need to know when someone's going to tilt. You need to know, yeah, you need to know what to say to someone. You need to know whether encouragement's what you should be doing. You need to know if someone's taken a big loss that they shouldn't have. Is having a chat with them right away the right approach, or do you let them call off that type of thing? Yeah. Well, it was, this is why Matt Paris is one of the best coaches around, because when Slatch rammed his chariot star up my arse, uh, ATC last year, he just bought me a beer. Walked away, <laughs> put the beer down, and walked away because that's just what I needed. Um, yeah. Uh, no, our coaches last year were great. Like Kevin, uh, yeah. Matt, they did uh, they did a great week's work. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, Martin was outstanding the year four as well. Um, I think it's just my especially ATC having having a good coach. Um, it just makes everyone's life so much easier. Yeah, and you can see why teams bring a couple as well. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And actually, I think that that worked really well last year. The two coaches it allowed them to kind of watch both ends of the, the tables and then come together and say, right, okay, Andrew's absolutely fucked it, um, but Paul's up and things like that. So that never, I think that maybe happened one round. <laughs> <laughs> it was me calling my coach's time after Slatch had absolutely rammed me. Um, Okay, so the next question that we wanted to talk to you about is, um, and it kind of links into the stuff we've already we chatted about, but what do you think is are, are the main differences between good players and great players? Because I think the K is blessed in that I think we do have quite a, a large cohort of 
good players. But yeah. I would probably say there's, you know, a group Very of few great players. Yeah, I think there's maybe a group of fifteen who I would class as great players. Okay. How many? Sorry, to kind of make this a little bit more interesting. How many great players do you think are in the UK, Tanka? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need names, but uh, I would say four to five. Okay. Yeah, I'd say there's a. I'd say there's. 20 or so in the in the good category and then i'd say four to five in the in the top savage i mean that's you and i got from the good category well <laughs> oh i did i had no illusions that i was near, near that guy. <laughs> yeah <coughs> okay so how do you get into that category tell us i think it's all about sex favors i think the the first, well, just to get a good category itself, I think it's playing a list until you know it inside out is definitely one way of doing it. So I spent a long time in seventh playing as a man, and until I knew that army inside out, and then from there you can then add on to things quite easily and adapt to the situation. Until you know one army inside out and know how to play in every scenario, I probably wouldn't. I find there's a lot of people that jump armies quite quickly and they they play an army for three to six months. They'll jump to another army and they never seem to step up to the next level up where they look like they have potential to. Mm. So I think that's probably for me play, or if you are going to play two or three armies, play something along the same lines. So Andrew, your empire and vampires, I know they're slightly different player styles, but they're in the, they're in the blocky character reliant area really. So that's probably something for me that to get into that good category to start with, I'd play one list, play it inside out, and don't worry too much about what your opponent's army is and how it plays. Just play your game. It's probably the the good part. <clears throat> and then for me, the great part is really just putting your game onto your opponent. That's probably the biggest one for me in that if you can make your opponent react to you, or I always find that some players are actually very good against playing against a momentum, but I always find that if you play with momentum and you're making decisions, your opponent's reacting to you, it's normally in a good position. And I know that over the last couple of years, I've started to take the other approach and kind of like to react to my opponent a lot more. Mm. But I do think for those players looking to step up quite quickly, put their stamp on the game quickly, play something where... You can be aggressive, want to, you can sit off and shoot, but whatever it's going to be, put your stamp on the game and make your opponent play your game. And that probably does go back to your early point around deployment and list building a little bit as well, though. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I guess that factors a lot stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you know you want if you know you want an army that gets into combat quickly, you gear your game around that and you push and you you don't go balls out push, but you push as as sensibly as you can to get into cock quickly. If you want an army that sits and shoots your opponent off, you build a list around it and you make your opponent come to you. There's, I think mixed arms work for learning the game and getting into a good place. But I think if you want to really go and step up, most of the list aren't, most of the lists that seem to do very well typically focus on a couple of aspects tops. I think mixed arms is... It can work, but you have to be a very, very good player to play mixed arms well. Really interesting. 
I mean, this is the, this is one of the casual debates, right? It's, do you skew or do you, do you stay balanced? Yeah. Um, I, I think balance balance works for learning an army, learning the game, and learning your list inside out. But I think you will get to a point where, especially, well, I, I think it depends on singles versus teams mentality again. I think in singles you will get to a point where you'll be a bit disheartened because you will play two or three skew lists that you can't deal with very well. Yeah. Whereas in in teams, obviously, that's mitigated. So I think I actually think that skew is a skew is definitely how I interpret singles more in terms of list building. I think you can go balance teams a lot more comfortably. Yeah. Again, when we had um, Tom Uden on, he kind of said the same thing that you, you skew your list and you take the gamble that you, yeah you, you are you know you're going to avoid those you know three to five lists that you absolutely cannot play against because you know if you yeah. if an event of a certain size the likelihood is that you might not play those lists. Yeah, I I typically tend to look at it if you're on fifty five to sixty points at the end of game four you're in a very good position if you get a decent round five draw you're in a very good position to do well. If you don't have a list that can comfortably pick up 15 plus points against some armies, then you're always going to struggle to do. But it depends what it depends what your depends what your aim is, I suppose. But if you're looking to go and podium a tournament, you've got to average 15 points. And if you have a list that averages 12 consistently, you'll still finish well in a tournament, but you'll struggle to break that top five or so. Do when you go to an event, do you have like a goal in mind? Do you say like I want to get 60 points or you know, etc. It depends, to be honest. If it depends on a couple of things. If it's if it's round two, round three, and I haven't done well so far, I will just sometimes stress test a list at an event and push as needed, and push into the game, push into scenarios where I wouldn't normally. At the start of a tournament, it's just to to do as well as possible, really. But I don't think I've ever gone into a game except maybe round five and. I've never gone into a game trying to conserve points. I'll always try and pick up points. And sometimes that does have the adverse effect of you do lose bigger than you should, but mm. I'll often try and pick up more points than I perhaps perhaps would want from the list, let's put it that way. So, sorry, what, what, would, what would you say is the big difference then between the, the, the great players and the, the good players? Uh, so Just the, the ability to like know your list inside out? Yeah, know your list, in, know your list inside out. Don't get flustered by your opponent. Play your own game. And probably the third one, which probably links back to the uh, the deployment bit a bit, is just knowing where the game's going to go in terms of flow. Just being able to read a bit of the flow of a game, knowing if your opponent's going to push early, knowing if you push early and your opponent didn't expect it, what your opponent's going to do to counter that type of thing. That, right. I think that's probably more of a, a thing. It's, there are a few players in the UK and... Probably the person I probably think about the most, and I think about this, is Raph. When if you push at Raph, he will take you off normally. He loves playing defensively and going second. Yeah. So there are a few, um, a few people you can't do that against, but against most players, I'd always say it'd be on the front foot. It was actually I had a, a really good conversation with, with Raph at an event, and it was it was on that exact topic about reactive player styles and. Um, yeah. and he he said the same thing. He was like, always choose to go second and react to, to the yeah. position, which is interesting. And I've, I've started to take that on more, but I still like being aggressive when I can. Yeah. So does Andrew. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I was just about to ask you this. Do you feel that, to both of you, do you obviously, thank you, we've already talked about this a little bit, but do you feel like that was changed? 
over the course of your, your playing careers? Uh, yeah, definitely. So I did used to be a lot more passive and let games develop, whereas obviously now I will be more aggressive when need to. I think the the main thing isn't really a play style change. It's just a mentality change in that you you need to, whether it, well, I say mentality, uh, what am I trying to say? Yeah, I'd say mentality change, actually, that probably works the best in that just force your view of the game on your opponent whether that be movement deployment however i think there's a lot of things you can do to make a game move away from being quite formulaic as well if if you have your army and your opponent has their army and you pretty much know how you're going to deploy and they're going to deploy i think mixing it up every now and again and going totally outside the box works quite well stacking a flank where you probably shouldn't throws a lot of people off that type of thing there's definitely scope in there for crazy things i think having a couple of unit choices in your army which opponents might not have seen very often or might be more cost efficient than they should be in certain scenarios is also useful so you can kind of use them as pivot points for the rest of your list so for me with warriors that's pretty much taken up by pride knights because they shouldn't be able to do what they should they do for their points in terms of holding units and that type of thing Mm. What about you, Paul? What do you think about this? Um, in terms of, I, I don't know what my playstyle is, so I'm not even at the stage. <laughs> I'm not even at the stage of trying to hone in my craft. I don't even know what my craft is. <laughs> I, for me, I'm just trying to get better at the game and remember the fucking rules. <laughs> but no, I think as time goes on, and the more games you play, and the more experience you get, I think the whole thing about the game <clears throat> starts to come through more. And then I yep. think at that point, you're only really in a position where you can start writing lists where you know in advance how it's going to function on the table and what it can and what it can't do. So then you just start using it completely different at that point. And I think only then do you start developing your own play style. Um, I don't think... I, I'm definitely not an aggressive player. I know that for sure. Um, so I probably shouldn't be playing the armies that I play. <laughs> but um, that's not the reason why I started playing them. Yeah. I think... Um, the whole thing about playing your own game, though, and writing lists that you like, even if that goes against the grain of what everyone else plays, yeah. if, you, if you can find a way to play that effectively, then I think that immediately makes you a harder player to beat. You, you don't necessarily go out and like bring in massive scores, but if you're using things that people aren't used to seeing, then I think it's it definitely makes you a more <coughs> interesting player to play against. Like, I've... I've never went into a game and thought, I 20 this other person. I'm I'm entering the game looking at it like, how do I not lose 20 against this person? <laughs> so, like, I think um, the closest thing I probably came to that was the list. Yeah. Yeah, that list is interesting. I do like it. And, I mean, it, it, it goes down hard against the wrong thing, but it can against the right thing, it's amazing. I think it's maybe just a little too niche. I think it probably struggles against more than it does when. Like I don't yeah. think it's I don't think it's these kind of lists where it's like fifty fifty, you'll either get good matchups or bad matchups. I think it, it errs more on the fact that you'll probably get a lot of just meh matchups. Yeah. And you'll you'll get more than good. So it probably doesn't fulfill that kind of strategy as well as some other ones, but in terms of like an <laughs> overall playstyle for me, like I fuck knows. Like I, I I like being reactionary, but I I wouldn't say that I look at a game advance and think that's how I'm going to play. 
if I think I can push, then I'll try. But I don't know. I, for me, I'm still getting used to the game. Like I've only been playing war games for a few years, so like for yeah. me, it's all still getting used to it. Yeah, and I think on that list point as well. Sometimes I'll write a list that I like. Sometimes I'll write a list with winning scenarios in mind or winning particular scenarios in mind. I think there's definitely a lot of ways to approach it as well. And I think, as you said, building something that doesn't look like someone else is a big thing as well. So a lot of my warrior list, especially the double, triple ancestor list, no one's playing my list to look anything like that. And it catches so many people out, not because the list is actually that good, but just because no one's played against it to know what to do against it in a scenario. Mm. So yeah, definitely thinking a bit outside the box in list creation yeah. is definitely something I'd uh, tr- recommend trying out for a few games. Is that something that you've thought much about, Andrew, when you're writing your lists? Like, do you do you try as original as possible, or do you just write lists that you like? And if you find yourself kind of leaning into things that people generally take, you just take it anyway. Uh, I don't like. I never really follow like lists and things like that. Um, yeah, simply because sure. I, th- I think that's a hidden trap because. I think if you take a net list, you're not you're obviously taking someone else's list, and you can fall into the trap of yeah, the list might be very good in the hands of that player, but you're not that player. Yeah, and you might be able to scrape by with the results, but you're never gonna get amazing results with it because it's not it's not you essentially. <laughs> yeah, um, and I I think on that point as well, just to build on it, I think there's definitely points around if you want to try a unit out in your list. I see a lot of people that say I want to try this unit out, and I'll try it out for times and they'll try one unit of it out or they'll try it out in a set tournament or a set few games my approach typically is to actually take multiples of the same unit because you'll know very quickly what it can and can't do you don't have to have that longer stress test period with the list mm. so that's probably a an in, that's probably one for someone who's trying something out if you're trying out i don't know if you're trying out nashers to, to go back to the earlier point, try two or three units of them out. Try one unit because one unit has answers to. And if you play five games and your opponent counters them in all five games, you haven't really learned anything about that unit. Yeah. I think Matt DP has very much uh, adopted Daji for his uh, new Empire list. <laughs> Three units yeah. of flaggies and four units of militia or something stupid. Mental. Yeah, so sorry, just for a bit of context, Tanker. So um we're doing the, the Celtic Cup just now and uh I'm yeah, playing, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I um I'm playing uh Matt on Thursday and he's got yeah. a completely off the wall empire list and it's three blocks of thirty flaggies, uh three units of twenty militia, um like something like fours, like bare bones, one's on a horse, the other three have just got great weapons. Yeah, he's got three prelates. And an adept on a Pegasus. It's just completely mental, like absolutely not what you expect to see. Um, and we were talking about it today, and like on paper, you think I'm going to blow through it, but then how do you know? Because who, who, when's the last time you played against 90 flagellants and 60 state militia? Yeah, <laughs> you've got no way to know how that plays on the table. I mean, I don't think Matt knows how it plays on the table either. I think he's kind of, <laughs> he's, he's he's taking it because he wants to try it. And I think they're brilliant. I think off the wall lists are absolutely you know, a strength that if you can pull it off, then go for it. Yeah. And as soon as it looks different to someone else's, it gets that interest. It gets interest. I always find that playing with a list that someone else's, even though it might be strong and you might do well, I don't find it catching my attention for long enough. Hmm. I guess there is an element as well that, you, I know personally for me, like whatever, <laughs> one of the reasons I don't really like the independent, 
is that because of that and yeah. i just want to be you know it's the hipster in me i want to be a little bit different <laughs> so, yeah um, okay, that that was a really interesting uh, conversation there. Um, so let's let's change focus for a wee bit um, and broaden up to the armies themselves. So uh, we'd love to get your thoughts on this. So Tanka, what do you think are what's the power tiers as you see them? What are those top five armies that you were earlier on, and which armies do you think are at the lower end of that spectrum? So I think I'll start off by saying I think there's definitely a top four to five armies or so. I think there's a very big middle tier and I think there's a very small bottom tier as well. I think the bottom tier, there's two or three, I'm going to start, I'll start from the bottom. There's two or three races. I think that are in there at the moment, but particular builds in there are actually pretty strong. Yeah. Overall, I definitely think dread elves are probably in there simply because out of the, uh, the single model list with the chariots and the raptor knights and the bolt throwers or the bolt throwers or the chat or the, uh, the hunting chariots, I just don't see that book being able to put out what it needs to. If you want to take a blocky army with shooting, you take high elves. If you want to take an avoidance shoot me, you take wood elves. If you want to take a full combat army, you probably take wood elves as well. Mm. And just sprites. So I think dread elves are definitely down there. <clears throat> I think balanced dwarf armies are probably down there as well. Okay. The uh, armies you want are either very defensive or very MSU. I think they're mid or middle tier, but I think the uh, the more all-round dwarf army that tries to do a bit of everything actually struggles because I don't think it puts out enough shooting to stop rushing it and taking it off a lot of the time, or or conversely being outshot by someone else. Uh, and then I think I hate to say it because of how strong they used to be. But I think UD may be down there, but I'd have to play against them a lot more than I have recently to hundred. Okay, that, I mean that's yeah. controversial. I just, I just don't think they've quite got enough. I think they might be middle tier still, but I, I need to play against them. I think there's definitely a couple of skew lists which are wrong still, but I think the, uh, I just think they don't quite get enough in anymore, especially with the new healing mechanic. But uh, I definitely think there's definitely a couple of skew lists. Like the Triple Sphinx is a nightmare for some armies. So there's definitely uh, definitely some op- open options on there. Okay. And then I think, as much as I... They're personally a bogey army for me. I hate playing against them. But I think KOE might be down there as well. Yeah, just two one-dimensional. Yeah, can... yeah two one-dimensional. They Don't get me wrong, there are, there are a few builds and... There are a few builds you can skew, so you can go heavy characters, and it is a nightmare for some armies, but overall, I just think, that, as you say, they're a little bit too one-dimensional. And I think it's a shame, because I think the uh, the foot knight unit and the big unit of peasants can work still, but you just don't see it. It's just yeah. careless running that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that's probably my bottom. At the top, I think there's... I think there's three armies which are above the rest, definitely, but I think there's probably more of a top five. So at the top, I think you've definitely got demons. I don't think there's, for me personally, I don't think there's an argument for it. I think they are above rest. Okay. They they do everything well. You can build any type of list you want with them as well, which is crazy. You can go heavy magic, a decent amount of shooting if you really want to. You can go heavy, fast combat. You can go heavy, slow combat. You can go ultra-resilient. They're just all around. You can build a list that does a bit of everything. And 
in lemurs you've got one of the most stupid units i've ever seen in any edition of warhammer <laughs> so the two wide unit with champ banner and roof <laughs> is and it's an abomination overall uh, i think at the level below it i'd probably put the rest the top five i want to say you've definitely got to put war Roman swarm in there warriors obviously quite one-dimensional but they do it very well yeah they also probably, and I do agree with a few people that have said it, they have a few too many leadership mechanics that help them out too much. I'd like to see some type of change regarding when they're winning a combat, they're more likely to break someone or something along those lines, and when they lose the combat, they're more likely to flee. I think the whole, we're leadership nine, we can re-roll, we don't lose combat by much because we have a really good armor is a bit too strong for them. And then Vermin Swarm are up there simply because simply because of Disciples. Mm. But also Disciples, Gisales, Doom Dread uh, Doom Wheels. You can take your pick really from the shooting category and it's still going to be a solid list. Yeah. And then I think Infernals are going to creep in there along with SA. Wow, okay. Yeah. So yeah. SA SA for me, the army I'd play in a heartbeat if I could on the team, but every year fifth year on the team was meant to be this year and i still didn't get them so yeah i think there's a lot of people at the moment that are playing high elves and i do think they're strong in the current meta but i think that's more just a meta thing rather than the book self but time will tell i guess if they if the infernals change the meta enough and high elves become a bit less bit less popular Mm. but yeah i think there's a lot of armies though that i think any of the other seven eight armies you could probably take and argue for a spot in the top eight, if then for an ETC team, I think they've all got something different that they can give to a team. Okay. What's the um, the thought process behind the the Saurians? I personally, my ideal approach to a game used to be and would be if I could still take Saurians to have a very good magic phase backed up by hard hitting small units. And although I don't like to use expensive single models, you kind of have to, but in terms of Stegodons, Slan, Stegodons, Coatl, and Rippers, you've got three choices that are pretty hard hitting when they need to be very manoeuvrable because they're single models or flyers. The Slan magic phase is still head and shoulders above most of our armies when it needs to be. Between the effective plus three to cast is just broken at times. Just the, the two dice and everything is... I mean, to be fair, you pay a lot of points to, for that. Um, you do, you do, you do. But you'll, you'll play that game where... You'll play that game where you play Empire or you play Warriors and you two dice laugh, two dice spike, two dice hereditary at someone and they will just cry at you. Yeah. Especially being as a lot of the time two dice with plus two to cast, your opponents might have to chuck four dice to dispel it. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, I played Colin last night. And uh, I, I pushed him into a corner, and I was like, "How the fuck is I'm a stark of half his shit?" Is it just like side <laughs> side moves out of arc everything? Oh, yeah, absolute nightmare. Just the yeah, the way the whole army plays, the the ability to take multiple poison shots on average, it might not do something. The spike factor just puts them really far over the edge as well because they've never really got poison right in any. In, in any way or costing it or the effectiveness of it yeah. it still is too good or too bad in any situation 
Yeah, you, I mean, it's, it's like Battle Force. It's, it's the same yeah. potential that you throw. And it absolutely shocks me that a game that's trying to be more balanced still has Poison and Battle Focus in it, in its current way. Shock times. And you love Battle Focus in it. <laughs> yeah, well, I love it when it works. Poison, <laughs> Poison 5 Plus is fucking revolutionary. I would I would urge everyone to go and get Poison 5 Plus. <laughs> <laughs> um, Battle Focus is... I, I had this conversation with Ed up here. And he was like, Battle Focus, he said, Battle Focus equates to plus one to hit in most circumstances. That is the biggest load of bullshit I've ever heard because it either does fuck all or you <laughs> obliterate units. <laughs> just, there is no middle ground with Battle Focus. It's just the fact that... Isn't it Battle Focus and Hatred is, yeah, is an auto hit, basically? Oh, I that's, mean, yeah. That's, that's what the maths work out to, pretty much. I mean, playing Nick with the Beast Herds when they've got the... the yeah. Hatred, oh, it's Nick's, Nick's an animal. Nick's an animal. Give, give, give Nick five attacks, he'll hit you ten times. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely insane at times. Oh, those fucking Minotaurs. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think, I think that's... Yeah, I think there's definitely an argument for High Elves being in the top five, but personally, at the minute, I think they just play the meta very well. Mm. So, interested to see if they stay up there. But obviously, they have been up there for a few months now, so they might might be in there as well. Is that just because Highborn have played so much that in every change in meta and rules iteration, they just get their book tweaked <laughs> that new <laughs> system? You know? Yeah, I think there's definitely been a quite a big shift away from pyro in recent months as well so that's helped them want to take infantry as well thank fuck <laughs> yeah it does seem that pyro in general is falling out of favor especially now i i'm very interested to see if people bother taking a master i don't think anyone will ever take master pyro as their only mage anymore personally i know i put i at the moment in the high elf list in social distance and i'm running i'm running a high elf master pyro and I've been less and less impressed with it as time's gone on. I'm oh, sorry, I've got two questions here. Uh, one, I wonder what you think of the... Because you've obviously been playing the High Elves um, for social distancing. Um, but funnily enough, I was thinking last night um, that I wanted to ask you about the High Elves. And I don't know if anyone's aware of this, but there's a there's a 4chan page for Ninth Age stuff. And, uh, no? Yeah, and it's, got, it's incredibly detailed. It's got all the armies, like a breakdown of it, all the rules and stuff. <laughs> you can you can tell a high elf player has written it um, simply because it starts with the phrase, um, the army has been considered overpowered, then got nerfed several times to the point of it being the worst, second worst army in the game. <laughs> and uh, then about four paragraphs follow detailing uh, why the highborn elves are the worst army in the game. It's just incredible, incredible reading. Uh, I would urge everyone to go out and read that. Um, but how have you found them? Because obviously, when the um, when the bowline list uh, came out, kind of like what was that, like six, six eight months ago, um, it kind of took everything by storm. Yeah, I I don't have the patience to play a heavy shooting army anymore. Not like that anyway. I've I've definitely moved away from having the patience to sit still for two or three turns and not mm. do anything. So yeah, it I found it very very challenging. I. I hate playing against Ryan Knights. He played Warriors over the last couple of years. So I think I have a bit of a rose-tinted uh, glasses when it comes to them and all five games far. Oh, really? So I, uh, I just find them quite boring <laughs> to play. I find that they give up... Even when playing defensively with them, you give up too much initiative to your opponent a lot of the time. It depends on how your opponent plays the game as to what's, what the score is going to be, I find, a lot of the time. Trying to push games with them can be a mm. bit tedious. Yeah, the list is probably not set up to, to be amazing at games, so it's definitely a, a draw list. 
Okay, so how have you found them overall? Because um, when I was listening to Slanra um, a few days ago, Craig was talking about the lists in the, in the team, and he said about your list, he said it was a strong list, but it's not a tanker list, was his word. Yeah, that is definitely how I'd sum it up. It's, it's, it's definitely strong, and that big spear unit with double plus one to wound in the list is horrifying for a lot of people. But um, I've just been so unimpressed with Pyro that it's kind of sh- overshadowed my love for the list a bit. Okay. I do find the, the Swordmaster unit for its points is one of the best things in the game. You can avoid it being shot quite a lot, which obviously I've got a decent amount of shooting and I've been able to stop people shooting quite well. So the Swordmaster unit has typically done quite well in a lot of its games. And uh, it's definitely something I think I'd be putting a second unit in or sm- making my unit a bit smaller and trying two units out be my my next attempt at the list if I was to run high elves again. Before we finish up with the last question, um, I, I've got to ask this, but I don't, Martin Obey, um, why do you not consider a Sylvan Elves bot here? I, I must admit, I would, I would put them in that bottom bracket and have done on previous previous shows. <laughs> I think overall they, they may be, but after a couple of builds which you can just bully people with. So... The Dryad block is one of the best blocks in the game for its points. There's not a lot that can take two or three rounds of shooting and then fight that Dryad block one-on-one. I think some of the lists that are, the lists that are doing the rounds in social distance at the minute with 20 Pathfinders, 10 Sentinels, and 2 times 10 Archers, there's not a lot, especially with a couple of trees backing it up, there's not many armies that can can take that much shooting for that many turns and fight and win objectives still. Yeah. Don't be wrong, I do think it is susceptible to being 20 nil if someone full rushes it, if they have the tools to do it, but I think they're definitely an army that benefit massively from teams more than a lot, in that it's probably not going to get run over in teams, because even if someone gets a green matchup against it, they might not push as hard as they would in singles anyway. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, and our a kind of final question, um, which will bring everything together quite nicely, Um Obviously, your your ogres were were, were kind of like your big hit on the scene, uh, coming into it. But what if you could only play one army for the rest of your days? Uh, what would it be? Would it, would you stick with the ogres or would it be those saurians? Ooh, uh, at the moment, how the books are the saurians. Okay, that's interesting. I just find them the most interesting to play with, and find that they make the most interesting games at the moment out of all the armies I've got. Okay. Um, Paul, anything to, to add? Any final questions? Um, no final questions. I think... Um, first question. The, obviously, you've played Ogres quite a lot. What advice would you get to uh, a new Ogre player? This is going to be... This is for someone else. Personally, I I think Ogres are in a very weird place in that the block list is pretty strong, but it it has some bad matchups where it will just lose big. So I, I think if that's the way you want to go, I think it can be done. But I personally have ran a big block of bruises in the past, but that wasn't the main focus of the list. It was still MSU with a big block to support it. I think Lockie with them, don't get me wrong, that mercenary unit against some armies, it will just walk through. Mm. But personally, I think they're a, they're a great point for picking MSU up with. Between Mammoth Hunters, Giants, 
Yetis. I've actually really fell in love with the Yetis recent, recent games. So I definitely think there's enough in there that you can make that army MSU as much as you want, really, if you want to. Yeah. I think overall, though, the biggest thing that really I've like, taken with them is the Sabertooths are probably the best chaff in the game, or <laughs> definitely up there. I, I think if you don't have if you don't have any hunters, I'd always take three singles, just because hide hide being able to hide behind your own units and not being able to be killed and then chaffing where you want is. I, I think them and probably Great Bats are up there as the, the best chaff in the game. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> just, yeah. I mean, I really like the Sabercats. Yeah. Um, and I like them as single models and in units. I think they're both... Yeah, yeah. I think they're viable. both. But uh, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I would say would be the best chaff in the game. I mean, I think flying chaff is just so strong. And it's so annoying to play against. <laughs> yeah. I think for its points, for its point, that's for the... If that's... I'd love to see how many points Great Bats would have to be if they could march all the time. Very interesting. Oh my. Trying to point them correctly if they could march all the time would be the hard, one of the hardest things to do in the game. His bottom lip when he said when you hear <laughs> I might actually say it's really hard. I'm surprised that you didn't hear Marshall clap. Um, <laughs> how, much, how much does an eagle move? Is that 14? 18, I believe. 18? I mean, so that's the same, right? As a Great Bat. Yeah, yeah, effectively. The problem with the main problem with an eagle is though you can always see over elves. Yeah, that's true. Large. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. always been the problem with them. They're great, but you can always see them. Whereas great bats and sabers, especially saber tooths, being smaller than ogres, just means that you can hide them where you want. And I, I think there's, I think there's, there's definitely options in an ogre book to take five hundred points worth of chaff just in any list, basically, and just have five that your opponent doesn't know where your army's going between a unit of yetis, a unit of scrappling trappers and three saber tooths. That's most armies have deployed by the time you've put those down and you've only dropped five points. I think it's definitely a good army for learning deployment with. That's actually a little cheeky bonus question before we wrap up. Um, obviously you've just said there are 500 points of chaff. Is, is there a point where you take too many units of chaff or is there like a perfect number of chaff? You... I think it depends massively what use the chaff has other than chaff. If it has okay shooting or if it has decent combat stats, I don't think there's a harm in going for more points. But typically, I wouldn't really want to spend more than, I think, 10%, roughly the max. I'd probably go to maybe 500 points, 10%, somewhere around there. It's probably the max I'd typically want to go to. Probably less if you think you can get away with it. Mm. For instance, in Ogres, sometimes I'll just run 240 and three Sabertooths or two Sabertooths and you know, tra- trappers. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts or questions from anyone? No, I've just been writing all this down. <laughs> I have to say, I found that absolutely fascinating. That was uh, an engro- I mean, I've had three beers and I don't feel drunk at all. I think the, the brain's been absolutely uh, in overdrive thinking about all that. Um, thank you so And I do think it's something that we've lost a bit in the UK scene. Not lost a bit, but. There did used to be more talk, especially at the end of Game 3 at events, and especially when I was on Fridays, there used to be a lot more Warhammer talk, whereas nowadays it's a bit harder with the news that don't stay open, mm. or people going down a lot more, whereas back when you were a bit more stuck at Element, everyone would just stay at Element and chat a lot more, if that makes sense. Yeah. Or Bristol, people would stay and have a couple of beers. And... I think the, the scene does split a little bit more at the minute. I've got to say, it's probably the, the saving grace of having to travel 
long distance to get down to most of the events is that our car rides home normally see about yeah. four or five uh, lists being written <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely because a, a lot of tournaments i get in there are either by myself which just means jord and it is a, a lot different to the two hours on the way there the tie back where you'd you plan out exactly what you're going to do in game one you'd plan out your new army on the way home yeah exactly <laughs> I, I do miss that massively it's one of the it's one of the saving graces that having a big club is always useful for yeah absolutely plus it's always good just to chat shit and have a beer right um, well, thank you again. I, I thought that was incredibly enlightening, um, incredibly useful for a lot of people, I'm sure. Uh, just a massive thank you for coming on, Tanka. Uh, absolute yeah, pleasure, man. as always. Yeah, uh, that was really good. Maybe we should um, ask Tanka if you know if you now that there's less kind of highbrow chat, maybe around nineties. Maybe we can uh, look to the future and then organize a kind of a roundtable of good players we can have a, a good chat about shit like this in the future that might be yeah and i, I do think the what is awful for it but i'm behind having a, a whatsapp group but i, I do wonder with uh, how much the u.s discord has influenced people if we do get our own uk discord i think that's only a good thing as well because you can easily drop in have five or six people painting and chatting in that at the same time mm, yeah i think there's definitely scope for uh, our own discord which i know they're doing for uh, universally baffled aren't they yeah, mm. so I'm kind of hoping that's uh, that's how we go. To be honest, mm. I think I mean the social aspect as well for new players. I think just having a support network if you're getting into the game is massive. Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot of well, there's a fair few of you guys that play up there, and then there's a decent London scene. Yeah, outside of those two, I think it's a bit bit black, <laughs> a bit lost. Yeah. I think North England's getting a very good now with the, the likes of the Durham guys and um, yeah, the guys yeah, in Liverpool. Way. Yeah, I've um, been out to Element. I've been up to Element once with the the Liverpool guys and played. That was useful. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. I mean, a bit of a. There's a few guys in Wales, but not many. But yeah, definitely middle of the country is a bit light. Whereas traditionally, that was always where the big, where the most amount of players were around Nottingham area. I guess so, is, is that just a, a byproduct of the age Sigmar split? Definitely. Okay. Yeah, I guess we don't really have that issue because we came after that, right? Early. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, interesting. I mean, anything that Dicks especially can do to get new players in, as we know, it's, it's <laughs> not often successful, but I think just being open and available is massive and getting new yeah. players in. But uh, you can't force people to come through the door at the end of the day. They've got to, they've got to want to do it. No, yeah, definitely. Are you guys still planning to run Scotland in the year? Um, for if... for the, the team tournament? Yes. Oh, that's a good point. Um. I'm not sure, actually. Like, I, I don't know. I would like to think that at the time it was probably thought that it would just be postponed, but I don't know if that was back when people didn't expect the lockdown to be going on as long as that yeah. was. Yeah. That's the, I think for a lot of people, it's. Uh, I've had a few people chat with me, and it's like, what are we going to do? I don't, especially people that don't play UB. I do think the last couple of months, of the, I, I am worried that we're going to have too many tournaments at the end of the year, in a way. Yeah, but a, a scramble. Yeah, um, maybe um yeah well i dare say like we would normally hold one of ours at the end of the year anyway right like each last year was like november. that was a little bit later than yeah, yeah it was november which is a little bit later than we would normally have it but i dare say as, as soon as the lockdown officially you know ends properly then i think there's going to be a, at least one scottish event this year if that is possible yeah yeah, yeah. i still haven't made it up for one yet because the last two years it's been england practice weekend at the same time 
So I'm hoping yeah. to make one of the events at, uh, at some point. Uh, you're always yeah. more than welcome. Get drunk with fuck. <laughs> I mean... Oh, yeah. You can see him getting beaten up by some other random woman like he did last year. Oh, man. The night out with... I went out for a night out with him and James, Irish James, and uh, Stockport, just us three. Oh, my God. I felt... <laughs> I genuinely wanted to die the next day. It's, the, the, Fraz especially just becomes an animal at a certain <laughs> stage. <laughs> yeah, the morning after, he, he, he definitely goes feral. He's just in a bomb <laughs> somewhere. I mean, the, the what event was that when P shared the same toothbrush? Oh, oh that was, that uh... was uh, a bonding experience. <laughs> that was Siege last year, wasn't it? Yeah, That is grim. <sighs> yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a euphemism at first when they, when they told us that. Maybe it was. I mean, there was a white stain on their lips. That um, is grim. <laughs> See, you're missing out on all this, Tanker. You need to come come north and experience. <laughs> See, we used to have a lot of stories like this with the Dudley guys, but that hasn't happened in years now, so it's been a bit of a shame. Right. We'll, we'll adopt. We've just got to... <laughs> yeah, just come, come on north. Um, <laughs> so we have to frazzle tournaments. Yeah, you mind her, because we're all sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a massive thank you to coming on. Um, I think that was a really great chat. Um if you'd like to get into in contact with the podcast, rather, you can do so by getting us on Twitter at Scottish Knife Age. You can oh, I didn't set up the the Twitter podcast uh, account. Oh, that's but, okay. We can we'll do it at some point. There might be the podcast uh, Twitter account <laughs> at some point. Keep your eyes uh, peeled. I'd um, offer to do it, but I don't know how Twitter works. I'll I'll be meaning to do it for a while. Uh, yeah, that's, keep your eyes peeled. Maybe a wee sexy surprise for you. You can drop us an email at Scottish wildlands at gmail.com nailed it nailed it um you can get paul on the forum at space goblin you can get me on the forum at lost cause uh tanker what's your forum name tanker classic you can get tanker <laughs> tanker um we've got a few shows lined up i i love this idea of doing the the round table actually i think that's something we'll definitely pursue i think it'll be fun um but in the meantime, uh, thank you again to Paul. Thank you again to Tanka. Uh, Staying safe and yeah, take it easy, guys. See you next time. Bye.